welcome to our next CESEC podcast session. In this one, we want to show you a recording we took a while ago on our last CESEC Congress in Poznan in Poland. And uh, as you might know, we let the youngest of our society interview the most prominent shoulder and elbow surgeons among us on our international meetings. And uh, we did have some very interesting insights and perspectives already in some of our last chess sessions. And uh, here comes the next one from Poznan, Poland. Happy listening. Welcome, everybody, uh, to the next session of our SESAC podcasts. And I'm uh, very happy to have uh, two very special guests here because we're introducing a new show with the Young Forum Committee of the SESAC. And um, we're actually we're sitting right now in Poznan at the 29th SESAC Congress here in beautiful Poland. And uh, we have a very special guest here. This is Dr. Mark Frankel from the Florida Orthopedic Institute in Tampa, Florida, USA. And he's actually the ASIS president, the president of the American Society of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. And together with me is uh, Matis Jaksons, and he's member of the junior committee of the SESEC. And Matis is going to ask some questions the juniors always wanted to ask. And Matis is working as an attending surgeon in St. Gallen in Switzerland. And uh, I give over to Matis. So, Matis, the stage is yours. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. M uh, Frankel, to just come over here to Poznan to uh, our uh, CSEC conference here. It's a pleasure to see you here and to come over to our podcast. So... I will try to get to know a little bit the person behind Mark Frankel. So I will ask you some maybe personal questions. So first question, what did make you decide to do orthopedics? What was your main uh, idea behind that? So uh, I have a, a two older brothers. One of my older brothers passed, but my oldest brother, he's 10 years older than me. And when I was 16 in high school, I was uh, not very serious about academics. I, I uh, partaked in a lot of recreational activities that probably were not necessarily focused on being academic. And I went to visit him. He was a, a resident at USC. He's already finished his medical school. And he said, kid, you want to be a doctor? He said, they, uh, you get to help people. Um, it's, people respect you. You'll always have a job. He said, but you got you to be in the top of your class. I'm like, All right. Sounds like a plan. So That suggestion that I should do that by someone who I looked up to, I didn't question it. It was, it was really amazing because I was like, okay. And so I did that. I was extraordinarily academically successful in college, got into med school early, um, had a, a little break. Uh, during my, between my, again, in the United States, there's four years of medical school and we have four years of undergrad. I skipped a year of undergrad. And between, uh, after my first and second year, um, the medical school I was at was at Rush in Chicago. They had a, a very young chairman of pathology. And he was under the belief that medical education in the United States was plagued with an inability for doctors to critically think because everything was based upon how well you performed on standardized tests, but there was no ability, so you, you could prepare very well to understand how to do well on a standardized test, 
but it didn't lend itself to critical thinking. And he had this belief that you couldn't read a journal article when you graduated medical school and actually understand whether or not the study actually was valid based upon methodology. So he started a fellowship, and I was one of the first people to do that fellowship. It was a year of independent study. You worked in pathology. And uh, during that year, I worked with a guy named George Galante, who was a very well-known orthopedic surgeon, hip and knee world. He was the first one to sort of understand that you didn't need to have cement to get uh, bone attachment and found a pore size of metal. And that led to the uh, Harris Galante hip and the Miller Galante knee. And, and George was very interested in how we can enhance bony fixation. So I spent a year doing research, particularly in that area. So um, the thing about orthopedics is once I got into medical school, my brother said, kid, you want to be an orthopedic surgeon. He goes, they're always happy. You like sports. You're really into this. Uh, but you need to be in the top of your class to become an orthopedic surgeon. So I became an orthopedic surgeon. I really liked muscle skeletal physiology. I was totally... I was a bodybuilder, and, and uh, during that year I competed, that year of research, I competed in the Mr. Chicago Land Contest, which my uh, co-colleagues do never let me forget. There are pictures of me that they will intermittently show. But that was a very interesting thing, because I was so interesting in trying to understand maximal performance of the muscle skeletal system. I was obsessed with trying to understand how the normal muscle physiological response can maximize function, which later became uh, sort of important in, in, my, in my research. Um, so that also drove me into orthopedics. I, I actually, when I started orthopedics, I didn't think much about the surgery. I thought, God, I can be a doctor of the muscle skeletal system. This is awesome. This will allow me to, and, and really that, that got me, uh, that was the, the founding block. And then I started doing surgery, and like, wow, this is really cool. But it took a while. So the, how did you end up with shoulder then in the end? Okay, so uh, I, was, uh, I did my training uh, in orthopedics at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, which is where I currently live. And uh, that was a program that was very young, and it was really known for trauma. It was, um, the chairman was one of the first people to come over to Davos in the 1960s and spend a year in the lab with Stefan Perrin. He came back from Davos in the 60s, and one of the, one of the people that introduced internal fixation in the United States. And he was a super guy, very, very affable, um, very funny individual. And so when I was a resident, and I'd already done that year of research, and I, he, I loved doing research during my residency, he sort of said, you know, you need to go to Davos and spend a year in Davos. You really like this, and I, just like my brother, all right. Sounds like a plan. Um, but before I, this was back uh, in the late 80s, and it, traveling was a real problem. We didn't have the internet or anything. But I, I thought, well, I need to do another fellowship after the, the research fellowship. I got to sort of figure it out. So I was trying to think of, of what I wanted. I thought, I'd like to do a fellowship with people that are recognized thought leaders because I'd be very curious as how they became thought leaders. I wanted to understand that I had some probably innate desire to sort of mirror that behavior. So I, I went and I interviewed with Henry Mankin at Harvard uh, under tumor. I thought that was sort of interesting. There was a guy named Bert Zarens at Harvard also who did sports. And then I went to Mayo and I interviewed with uh, Bob Cofield and Bernie Moore, but 
more importantly, the impression of what happened was Sean O'Driscoll was in the lab, and he was doing the study where they had discovered the PLRI. And he was showing this. He was like, Mark, look at this. This is so cool. I, that was it. I was like, holy cow, I want to be here. I want to work with those two guys. I want, because now I can work with, and that was probably one of my best decisions of my life. So that drove me to shoulder and elbow. But it, it, it was, I had an interest in the shoulder, but it was more about the individuals that I, I, I wanted to work with them. So you were talking about your fellowship. Um, as a young surgeon, myself and my colleagues, we always try to get better and learn from the seniors, from the masters. So who, was your, who were your main mentors? Oh, there are so many of them. I mean, um, during uh, my residency, probably um, Roy Sanders, who's my senior partner, uh, he was, he was um, five years ahead of me. He's extraordinarily driven. He was very technically savvy. And you know, the, the people I think that mentored me the best were the people that sort of pushed me a little bit uh, uh, past my comfort zone. And Roy certainly did that. And, and I realized... That's ideal. You want someone who's going to expect more than you would expect of yourself. Um, and so Roy was very influential. My other partner, Tom Bernasek, was another one. And, and Tom became very important because I did this. It, it, the Mayo Fellowship, when I did it, was not a, a shoulder and elbow fellowship at that time. It was adult recon because there wasn't really, that, that didn't really exist. So I did three months with Bernie, three months with Bob. I did three months with a guy named Frank Sim and three months with Arlen Hansen. And two of, my, two of my partners who are senior to me, they had done a similar fellowship, and they already were in the group I'm in now doing hip and knee. So when I came back, I thought, I don't want to be a hip and knee surgeon. I, I, I'm going to be a shoulder and elbow surgeon. And that didn't exist. It did not exist at all. Um, but my my partner, Tom Bernasco, I mentioned, he was very busy, and he's like, Mark, I'm giving you all my shoulder and elbow patients. And, and he led the rest of the group to then send me that. So that helped develop my practice. And, and that was a really insightful thing, because oftentimes when we start our practice, we we might be in a fellowship where we had a lot of volume and then you start your practice and it's not the same thing. And you're trying to sort of imagine, well, how can I get to where I how it was? And, uh, I, and I don't know, this might be very specific to uh, the U.S. culture and it might not even exist now, but it really has to do with giving away the cases to other surgeons who like that. So if you start off and you're seeing hip and knee patients and you have a colleague who really likes doing hip and knee replacement, you say, hey, listen, I don't really like doing this. I really want to become good at the shoulder. So I'm, I'm going to send you these patients. I don't really want to. And if you give, it, it is amazing the impact of giving in any aspect of our lives. It is, And you don't do it necessarily because you expect it, but it, it tends to work out that way. So... Eventually, it was kind of an organic way to get into the shoulder, I believe. But, but how, during your career now, if you look back, what was actually the, the main breakthrough that you thought this defines, uh, defines shoulder uh, surgery at the moment, if you look back in the couple of years you've been working? Oh, well, a reverse shoulder replacement has definitely been the breakthrough. I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, the, the things, like, I did my fellowship in 1990, right? Okay. There was no reverse shoulder replacement. 
There was no arthroscopic surgery. It didn't happen. We, when I was with Bob, we'd put the scope in for like a second, look around, and that was it. So during my career, things have changed, and I tell my fellows that. I said, look, y you think when you come to do your fellowship with me, you want to do all these surgeries and learn how to do all these surgeries, so when you start your practice, you'll be surgically well-trained to do this. I said, it's likely over the next five to 10 years, you won't be doing any of the same things that you're doing now. So the desire to develop those skills is, is not necessarily really as valuable as you think, but what is really valuable, at least in my estimation, is trying to become a critical thinker. And then I, I come back to that theme because I believe that as orthopedic surgeons, we have a cognitive ability that we, as soon as we become orthopedic surgeons, we tend to negate uh, for some reason, maybe it because it's easier or whatever. At least in the U.S., that's totally uh, the case. You know, all the information, again, in the United States, it was so competitive that, you know, all the people that performed academically the best were orthopedic surgeons. Now they're orthopedic surgeons. You ask them a question about medicine, like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Because somehow that, that turned off. And, it, and I think that underestimates the true aspect of what we as orthopedic surgeons can contribute. It's our cognitive ability. Our technical stuff, yeah, that's fine and, and good, but it, it's much more than that. It is really the idea of ideas. You were talking about being a critical thinker. Uh, it's important for you. If you look back, if it's, is there something you did before, some type of uh, procedure or something else, and you, now looking back, that was completely wrong and you learned from it? Oh, yeah. There's a ton of them. So uh, I'll give you uh, one that's easy. So when I first um, started doing reverse, I, you know, I did this year of research in Davos, and during that year in Davos, it was really focused on internal fixation, uh, all the research we did. And I became very well aware of the importance of compression in providing stability. So when I designed the, uh, the base plate of, of that device with the center screw, I mirrored uh, the AO screw exactly. It's a 6.5 Cancella screw. I mirrored everything off AO. And when I did my initial placement of that base plate, I was so convinced about the stability uh, because of the uh, torque I got when I implanted it. I was so convinced it was so stable that I put those uh, peripheral screws in and I used three, five non-locking screws because I thought it really didn't make much difference and they were easy to use. And I did not believe when I did that they would fail because I was so confident of the fixation. Well, that was wrong. And it, it turns out that like these subtle things that you don't sort of see going into it. So what happens is, so if you think about AO principles, you think lax due to get compression, but then you have to neutralize things that will, will uh, potentially disrupt your compressive force, let's say, with a lag screw. So it turns out, I believe, that in uh, base plate fixation, the center screw is the lag screw, and to neutralize it, you need to have something to stop it from unscrewing. And if there's potential motion between the screw head and the base plate, it just needs a little bit. And, and that then, and that, was a, that sort of happened at the time when the phyllos plate was first introduced with locking screw technology, which is really unbelievably interesting because if you look at Guermont's initial Delta III, he had locked screws in that. 
And, and no one talked about that. That was so unbelievably innovative. But no one talked about that. They all talked about this medial center rotation stuff. But that has nothing to do with it, really. That, that was really interesting to me. So that was one aspect of, um, I, I, I know I got it wrong. And then there's several other things I could, you know, you can look at how I look at now, how I look at things. I have an imagined idea of what's going to happen. And if things go along that way, my, uh, my thought process is it's not very noticeable because I, the expectation of what was going to happen happened. It's when something unexpected happens and there's a discordance between what I expect to happen and what happened. I, I can respond several ways to that. One is, if it's a bad thing, I can say, oh, it's something else. But that discordance, I think, is a really potential great time to learn. Because you're trying to figure out, well, what, what caused this experience to be so much different than I thought it would be? And so there, there are many moments of things that I in, anticipate, like the base plate, I anticipated it went fail. It failed. It was very, uh, it was very earth-shattering to me that that happened. Uh, Let's see if some other. That, that one's the easiest one. There's so many other ones that happened, uh, but that one's the one that sticks out the most. But and your biggest achievement? What, what would you think in the shoulder world? What, yeah, would it's it be? reverse. I would hope. I would hope it would be to challenge dogma, and see that if you challenge dogma, if you can, can if you can continually try to construct a, a pathway to realize that you're going to be challenged if you challenge dogma and not be necessarily uh, affected emotionally by the challenge. So if you're going to do something innovative and new, if you think everyone's going to go, wow, that's great, it's unlikely. It's unlikely that will happen because you're disrupting how we, how, we, how we act. I'm looking forward to your guest lecture here in Poznan. Are you, do you have some plans left when you, uh, you're done with the presentation? Yes. Um, so my... Uh, my parents uh, are Polish. My mom was from Kola, which is about an hour away from here. And my parents were survivors of the Holocaust. Um, and they were the only two that survived the Holocaust. And for the longest time, I had a great deal of uh, un uneasiness coming back to Poland because my parents in the United States, they did not portray uh, the Polish people as, as good uh, because they saw them pointing out the Jews, and since they were very traumatized uh, by that experience, I, I never quite understood how that trauma was passed down to me. Um, but as I went through this, I realized, you know, probably most of us at some point have anger at something, some injustice, and um, I've come to the belief that the most important thing we can do is to forgive Any, any of those things, because to, to continue to have that feeling, it, 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 it's not anyone else's problem. It's your own problem. You, you manifest a feeling um, uh, about yourself. That it, and so this has been really a wonderful experience to go back and now change my whole perspective about the Polish people has been remarkable. It is... It's really allowed me to, I think, emotionally get over something that for 62 years I really had to grapple with because I was brought up with these stories of my parents that were really, at the time, 
As I recall them, I thought of my parents as heroes. But as I got older in life, I understood the enormity of what they went through in a way that I probably didn't really deal with emotionally, and I really, I just sort of probably put it on the back shelf. So I think many of us are affected with some traumatic emotional or physical or something, and we get over it, and, and we don't realize that some of those things linger on in our way of how we see the world. Um, so that is what I plan to do when I'm done, is to go see Colo, which is where my mom was brought up, and I'm really looking forward to it. So this will be a, an interesting trip and maybe emotional. Thank you for your time, Mr. Thank you. Thank you. So this was the interview session between the Juniors Committee and Matis Jacksons from Switzerland, together with uh, Mark Frankel from Tampa, Florida, USA, the last um, president of the American Society of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Um, the new president of the American Society is uh, Xavier Duralde. And um, my name is Robert Hudek. And um, I am a shoulder and elbow surgeon from Hamburg, Germany. I want to thank you very much for listening and My very special thanks are to all those who support us and support the show, especially Michal Harashimchuk from Poland, and uh, he does all this great artwork. And uh, Sylvie Noel, of course, our secretary. Many thanks for your great support on the SESEC podcast. Bye-bye.